0: Habakkuk is an ancient book, but it is incredibly contemporary. And one of the things that impresses me so much about the Scriptures is that they're so vibrantly real. Oftentimes, we're fearful that those who are skeptical of Christianity ask questions like, How could a good God allow so much suffering? And we're hesitant because we look at the evidence of the suffering, of the difficulty, of the bad things that happen to our interpretation of good people, and it seems confusing. But here's the great news. We don't need to be fearful about that because God in His Word already addresses those questions. Habakkuk had hard questions for God. There were things that did not make sense to him. There were events happening in the world that confused him to the very core of who he is. Now what I want to invite us to do over the next few weeks as we explore this passage of Scripture is I want you to think about and write down your hard questions. What are the things about this world as it relates to God and spiritual um, reality that confuses you. And if you'll write down those questions and email them to me, I'll have Ian answer them, and, and, and we'll all be... <laughs> you signed up for that, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, what we'll do is we'll, we'll try to weave those into, into the messages and into maybe some devotional things. And let's, let's explore those questions together. We don't need to be afraid to ask hard questions. That's what we're seeing here in the scripture. Habakkuk has some really, really hard questions. And God's answer doesn't make sense to him. But we're going to explore a bit of that today and get into it a little bit deeper uh, next week. But here's Here's one truth I want you to hang on to. I've shared this with you before because it's it's something, it's a truth that has been imprinted into my own heart and life that um, really has been transformational. And it is simply this, if we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants. Why don't you say that with me? If we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants. Because God knows what he's doing, and God is good. He has a good plan for your life and for my life. He has a good plan for this world, and he is working it out. And so we need to trust who he is and rest upon his understanding, not our own. Now, the challenge is is we are complex beings, we respond to things with our minds, with our heart or our emotions, and with our wills. That's our obedience. And when bad events happen, when we experience either large tragedies um, that affect great numbers of people or very personal and intimate tragedies that break our own heart, we wrestle. We wrestle with our minds, and then our emotions tend to pour gasoline on the thoughts in our minds, and they heat up even more, and oftentimes the result is I choose disobedience. One of the things that I've discovered in my own life that that the Holy Spirit continues to remind me of is simply this little statement, Drew, don't sin too soon, because oftentimes that's what happens. In the midst of my doubt and despair and confusion, it leads me to be disobedient to God because I don't trust him. I don't see the answers coming fast enough. And I found out time and time again, just like the scripture said, had I waited and trusted a little bit longer, God provided a way. He would have shown me more of himself. He would have reminded me of truth, of his presence, of his power. But so often, I sin too soon. So those three things come together. With our minds, we tend to examine and look at the evidence. With our hearts, our emotions, we embrace, hopefully, the truth, and and it leads to belief. They work together. And then ultimately, with our wills, we exercise trust and obedience towards God. These three areas work together together Uh, to incorporate what it means to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is not just what we think. It is not something just that we feel. It also has to have a reality in what we do. That's why in James it says, faith without works is dead. If our faith does not lead to a transformation in our will and in our obedience, we need to question whether our faith is real. Now, the other side of that is our doubts, and oftentimes we're afraid to talk about doubt, but we shouldn't be, because doubt actually has a purpose in our lives spiritually, and doubt, as I'm using it, is not unbelief. It is the weakness of belief. We see this in Jesus dealing with the disciples. So many times he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He affirms that they have some faith, but they doubted. We need to understand that faith is like a muscle. The only way that our muscles get stronger is if they're exercised. The same is true with our faith. And what Habakkuk... Uh, See, I'm going to try to say it both ways at the same time. What Habakkuk is experiencing is there's a weight on his faith that's making it harder to lift it up, but in reality, it's getting stronger because he does the right thing with his doubts. He takes them to God, and he expresses them. Now, what happens, the reason why we have doubts is because um, our view of God has been distorted or distracted. And here's my working definition of doubt. Doubt results from a parallax view of God. And I may, have, I may have done this little illustration before here, but it's worth repeating. So what I need you to do is get your thumb out and put it up just just like that. Work with me here, okay? And I want you to put your thumb on me. I will stand still right here, okay? And I want you to... Close your left eye and aim your thumb at me. If you're mad at me, go ahead and point your finger and make it a gun. It's okay. Um, just go for it. Or even if you're not mad at me, you just always wanted to shoot the pastor. Why not? All right, so get your thumb out there. And then when I, say, when I count to three, on three, you need to close your right eye, open your left eye, and I will magically move. Everybody ready? Okay. One, two, three. Oh. Amazing, right? Okay, obviously, I didn't move, but what? Thank you. Thank you. Master of illusion. Thank you very much. Yes. Okay, what happened? Your perspective moved three inches. That's what happens with our view of God. Our perspective can't see things from His vantage point. And so there is a distortion in our understanding of what he is doing. And this is what God, in his answer to Habakkuk, is trying to illustrate and point out to him. The goal of our faith is to get an accurate view of God so that we can clearly see who he is and strive to move continually closer to him. God is consistent. He does not move. He does not change. That is the teaching of the Scriptures. But our view of God oftentimes is out of sync with where He is and what He is doing. The book of James in James chapter 1 gives us this statement. He says, "...every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." In the NIV, it says there is no change. That word variation or change is the Greek root. Um, it's parallaje, It's the word we get parallax from. And in this whole verse talks about how there is, uh, from our perspective, there's a distortion. And when he talks about the Father of Lights, he's talking about the stars, the sun, and the earth. From our perspective, when we're looking at it, From here on earth, it looks like the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And at night, when we get up, it looks like the constellations are moving. But guess what? They're fixed. We're the ones moving. We're the ones changing. That's what this verse is saying. It's trying to reorient us so that we look at truth. Now, one of the great things is That was written long before we discovered that the earth revolves around the sun. I think God knows what he's doing. It's pretty amazing. So let's look at these questions of Habakkuk. Verse 1 the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How many of you have asked that question? Me too. More than once. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. How many times have we felt like, God, you've promised to rescue me. Where are you? When are you going to show up? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity or sin And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The deepest question in Habakkuk's heart and mind is this. God Are you really just? I know about your character. I know about what I read in the scriptures and the history of our people. And so everything in me says, yes, you are. But the evidence that's right in front of me is making me question. Now, we're going to look specifically at this question of justice next week. But Habakkuk asks powerful questions that we wrestle with. Are you listening, God? Do you really hear me when I pray? Because I've been waiting for your response and it just doesn't seem to be coming. God, do you really rescue? Do you really save? Are you really just? Habakkuk is profound. Because it raises deep questions about the working of God in history. It explores why God does what He does. And why He does it in the way He chooses to do so. It is also profound because of the answers that God gives. Habakkuk had a problem. He had lived through a period of national revival under King Josiah, followed by a period of spiritual decline. Maybe that describes your nation. Maybe that describes your own personal history. You saw great things happen spiritually in in your country and now there seems to be a turning away from God. It's a history that seems to repeat itself in nation after nation because we're fallen, we're sinners. And so, Because he sees that, Habakkuk asks God. And God replies that he is sending the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to be an agent of of judgment on his people. And this is not what Habakkuk wanted. What you need to picture is you imagine the worst, most corrupt people on the face of the earth coming in, and God says, I'm going to use them to set your country straight, okay? We've seen that happen perhaps a few times in history. What's that going to do to your heart? It's going to turn it because you love your people. But what God is trying to get Habakkuk and us to see is that he has a much bigger plan, This is not the only place, however, where these kinds of questions are raised in the Scripture. They happen actually quite frequently. I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 73. It's incredibly similar. And and maybe it's a psalm that you want to spend some time meditating on because maybe this is where you are right now in your questions. Psalm 73. He starts out with praise. Praise. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He makes a statement affirming his belief, the psalmist does. And then he gets right to where he's experiencing life. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The psalmist is saying, when I look at how good some of the people who live in total rebellion against God, how good they have it, it doesn't make sense to me. He's wrestling with it because he says, you know, it's difficult for me. I'm trying to obey you, God. I'm trying to honor you in, in my life, in my work, in my family, in, in my witness. And yet, it seems to be this struggle. But then the psalmist as he's wrestling with these raw emotions and he's taking it to God, receives the answer later on in verse 15. When I sought to understand this, it was too painful for me until he went into the house of the Lord. It was there he saw their end. He understood that this life is but for a moment. Do you realize that if a person lives in rebellion against God, this earth is as close to heaven as they will ever experience? It is as difficult as life will ever be. Excuse me. It is as good as life will ever be. Thank you. I got ahead of myself. It's as good as it gets. On the other hand from an experiential standpoint for those of us who have placed our trust our faith in Jesus Christ as savior and lord this life is as bad as it gets everything beyond is incredible blessing because sin will be fully dealt with not only the penalty that Jesus Christ paid on the cross but also the consequences and therefore this is as close to torment as we get That right perspective is what the psalmist understood. And that's what God is trying to point out to Habakkuk. So let's look at God's answer to Habakkuk. Verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. This is the voice of God. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe If told. Now I want you to look at those verses and remember that that applies directly because it is God's word specifically to Habakkuk, but it is also a truth that applies to you and I. God is doing things in your life, in your family, in our church, in this nation, in our home countries that is more than what we see on the surface. He is doing an incredible work. And if we do not understand what is happening on the surface, we need to look deeper and see his heart and look back and see what he has already done. God tells Habakkuk, I am doing something. <laughs> but if I told you all that I'm doing, you would be going, No way. That is just absolutely unimaginable. Habakkuk then asks another question. After he goes on and tells him that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans to be the judgment upon Israel. Remember he complained first, your people are rebellious and you need to do something. And so God says, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and they're going to bring a transformation. They're going to bring Israel to repentance, okay? He asks God for an answer. God gives him an answer. He doesn't like God's answer. Anybody else been there? Yeah, too many, too many times. Um, and so he goes back in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. We shall not die. He, he affirms his trust in God. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He affirms what God says. But then he has a question. He says, you are a purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Same kind of question that the psalmist asked. Same kind of question that you may ask about a co-worker or about someone who seems to receive favor when you have difficulty. They're hard questions. And they cause us to wrestle and struggle with doubt. Frederick Beechner, in his book, The Alphabet of Grace, says this, without destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there's no room for doubt, there's no room for me. Because we're called to live by faith and therefore we're going to wrestle with questions. I want you to think about your doubts and, and I believe our doubts... Ultimately, center around three questions Is God real? Is God in control? And does God care? Ultimately, does God care for me? Whatever doubts we wrestle with, they will fit somehow in one of those questions or a combination of those questions. Are you really there? Are you really in control? Do you really care? Do you really love me? That's what Habakkuk ultimately is wrestling with. And so God gives him his answer and he says, look among the nations. Now I want you to notice where, where God points him. He wants him to get a broader horizon in his view. He's saying this is not just about Israel. And guess what? The answer that he'll give to you and I when we wrestle those questions, it won't be just about you or just about me. He's doing something far bigger. I want you to look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that if you were told, you would not believe. If you knew what God knows, you would always want what God wants. Here's some of what God was doing that Habakkuk could not see. You see, he's talking about a time that we know in the Scripture where the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to take Israel captive and they were going to be led away for 70 years. But there is so much that happened during that 70 years that prepared the world for the coming of Jesus Christ and for the birth of His church That if it had not happened, none of the things that we experience could have come into place. God's plan was much, much bigger. God rose up a king named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a Chaldean, to destroy Jerusalem. And he took away thousands of the best and brightest of Israel and took them back to Babylon. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked and extremely prideful king. You can read quite a bit about him in the book of Daniel. And yet God chose to use this corrupt and wicked man and his regime to accomplish God's purposes. Now that should give you hope no matter where you're from when you see things look like they're really going south for your country. Remember, God can use anybody. He can work because he is sovereign. He is in control. So we don't need to be fearful. Our trust needs to be in him and not in us and not in our leaders. In the book of Jeremiah, God even calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant because he's working through him, even using his pride to accomplish God's purpose. Here's a snapshot of what God did through Nebuchadnezzar, through the Chaldeans, later through the Medes and the Persians who conquered Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar's death. A significant portion of the Old Testament was written during this time. In fact, much of it was written in Babylon itself. Because of the captivity, because they were... um, not comfortable where they were back in their homeland, there was a greater desperation to call out to God, and God began to reveal himself in more and more detail. The book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Esther were written in Babylon. The book of Daniel gives us an incredible look at God's plan in history. He tells us of the rise and fall of empires, That's gonna happen over the next several centuries from that time. He tells us what God is doing among the nations. And more importantly, in Daniel chapter 9, God tells us the day and time when the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. He gives the timetable of what he is setting into place that's gonna happen that is gonna bring about the rescue of humanity. You see, Habakkuk was worried about a small group of people, and yes, God was very concerned about Israel, but he didn't come to just save Israel. He came to offer salvation through faith in Jesus Christ to every people, tribe, and nation. The prophet Ezekiel was also a captive in Babylon. And through him, God gives a description of God's glory. We get an insight into the heavenly realm that is more descript than anywhere else in the Bible. And this came came about during this time of great trial and judgment under this captivity. I believe these great visions of God, both in Ezekiel and in Daniel, came because their response to the hardship was to desperately seek God. To know him even more than to know the answers in their heart. God will use trials in your life for the same purpose. Our trials are a gift if we take them to God. and Say, Lord, what is it you want to teach me? What is it you're doing that I can't see? The book of Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra are all connected with the captivity as well. Jeremiah and Lamentations takes, uh, is written in the same time period, although it was written from Israel because Jeremiah was left behind, um, which is not necessarily the, the greatest compliment because all the best and brightest went to Babylon. That means he didn't make the cut um, is in at least the Babylonians' minds. Much of the Talmud, which is the Jews' oral law, comes from the time of captivity. And perhaps the most important thing that came out of this season was the Scriptures, the Old Testament, were translated into Greek during the Babylonian captivity, and those Scriptures became the Word of God that would be used in city after city after city when Paul and the apostles began to take the message of Christ and meet with believers that were scattered all throughout Asia and through Europe and uh, through the rest of the Middle East. What they had of the scriptures was the Septuagint, because many of them did not know Hebrew, and so those who were converts who were who were studying the the, the Word of God were studying it in Greek. And it set the stage for the church to be birthed. In the same way, at that time, the synagogues were born. Before that time, worship happened in the temple. If you were going to worship, you went to Jerusalem to worship. But during the Babylonian captivity, they could no longer go to the the temple and worship. And so therefore, God rose up the system of synagogues to place a local congregation in every town and city. And where did the apostles, the first witnesses, go to share the gospel? They went to the synagogues. You see, God was preparing the way for the message of the gospel and for the church. That's why he says, Habakkuk, if, if I told you all that I'm doing, you wouldn't get it. Because it's so much bigger than what you can see. There's far more that God was doing than what Habakkuk could understand. And the same is true in your trials and in mine. As I look back over our life, I see how God has used our adversity to be transformational. Some of this I've shared with you before, but it's so important to set this as the basis as we look farther into this book of Habakkuk. I told you that in our doubts, there are three questions we ask. Is God real? Is God in control and does God care? And those three questions help us to diagnose where there is weakness in our life and in our relationship with God because God provides three gifts that are answers to those questions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Verses 12 and 13. I find it incredibly interesting that in the chapter of the Bible all about love, God lovingly writes this truth to us. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I'm fully known what he's saying is right now, a lot of it doesn't make sense. All I can kind of see is the shadows. But what God is inviting us to do is to step out of the shadows that envelop us in our emotions when we're walking through trial and uncertainty and doubt and step into the full light of his presence and purpose. And that's what he shares with us in the next verse The next verse, he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Those three things are the answers to our questions. Is God real? He wants us to respond in faith. That's the message ultimately to Habakkuk is the just shall live by faith. They shall live not by just the things that they see, but they shall live by trust in God who has demonstrated who he is. And the ultimate answer to is God real is faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus came to show us what God is like. His life is the evidence of the character and nature of God to show us not only is God real, but God is approachable. And even more importantly, God approached us. He came to us. Is God in control? Hope is the answer. Hope in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rising from the dead proves that God is in control. No one else has risen from the dead. We do not see that miracle and the evidence of that miracle in any other religion on the face of the earth. It proves he is in control and he has conquered sin and death, the greatest fear we will ever face. Therefore, we can put our hope in the one who is victorious. And finally, does God care? Well, the greatest of these is love. And the love of Jesus Christ is the answer. Because Jesus Christ, while you and I were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, chose to die for us. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what we cling to. Jesus has proven himself. He now invites us to put our faith in him, to put our hope in the fact that he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And ultimately, to rest in his love. This is what God is calling us to, is to Jesus. Well, today, maybe you're wrestling with doubts. Maybe there's things you just don't understand and you're not sure what to do with them. At the end of our service, we'll have intercessors over here under the windows of heaven, those lights, the round ones that come down, and they'll be available, <laughs> yeah, I know it's cheesy, but why not, um, over here on the west side of the, of the sanctuary, they'll be there to pray with you. We all wrestle with doubts, and it's okay to share those things that we're struggling with with one another. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. But you do have a resource of having others pray with you. And maybe your maybe doubts are like this one. These are some prayers I wrote down. Prayers of a doubter. Lord, I have doubts. I'm wrestling with whether or not you are real. Would you give me more of an accurate view of your character and your nature? And would you grant me the faith to trust you fully? Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've never been able to get to the point where you're actually able to take that step and say, Jesus, I am trusting you. I'm not trusting on how good I am. I'm not trusting in being part of a church or being religious. I want to trust in who you are and what you did on the cross, in your death, your burial, and your victorious resurrection. Help me to do that. Next week, as we celebrate baptism, it will be a celebration of those who have made that step, who have, who have said, I identify with what Jesus Christ has done. I have placed all my trust in him. That's what he's inviting you to do today. But it takes a step of faith. We have to quit trusting in ourselves and say, I'm gonna trust in you. Or maybe, maybe you've already made that step but your doubts are somewhat different. Say, Lord, I have doubts. I am wrestling with whether or not you're really in control because right now my life seems out of control. I don't understand the circumstances around me. I don't like them. I'm hurting. Would you give me a more accurate view of your power so that I can hope in you? Or maybe your doubts are like this. Lord, I'm wrestling with whether or not you really love me. I see all the failure in my life, all the times that I've turned from you, all the people that I've hurt, all the disappointment, and I think, how could you love me? Jesus wants you to know he cares for you. You see, he came to save the vilest of sinners, me. And if he can save me, he can rescue you. None of us are too far. Here's why. God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than your failure. God is bigger than your rebellion. And Jesus Christ loves you enough to wrap his arms around you and say, let me take that burden and nail it to the cross. Forgiven and the record wiped out. And let me show you how much I love you. I want to invite you today to ask God to give you a bigger view of your circumstances. To take your doubts to him, to take your doubts to, alongside of an intercessor and pray about them together or other questions that you have, but allow this to be a turning point in your heart and life. So that as we explore more of what he says, we wrestle with those hard questions of how God can allow suffering. We wrestle with the questions of, God, are you really just? That we're beginning to take our doubts, our struggles, and our questions to the right place, which is what Habakkuk did, and took them to God. That's our message today. Take them to God. And begin to trust this truth, that if we knew, what God knows, we really would want what God wants. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you that you're so, you so identify with where we are that you allow us to wrestle with questions. And Lord, you even put them in your word with all the raw emotion and hurt and agony that we can experience. Lord, we thank you that we have a high priest, you, Jesus Christ, who understands because you have experienced the depths of betrayal, of hurt, of confusion because you have borne our sin. Therefore, there's nothing we can ask that's beyond your understanding. But Lord, help us to get unstuck and to take our questions, our doubts, our struggles right into your presence. And Lord, over these next few weeks, as we look at this scripture more in depth, Lord, would you help us to have greater confidence in who you are, greater faith, greater hope, and greater assurance of your love. Lord, we bless your name because you are a great, mighty, and loving God. In the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.